Welcome to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, uh, one of the cricket podcasts in the world. I'm not going to put a, a qualifier on it, but this is, this is a very casual lounge episode of The Final Word. We're in Abu Dhabi. It's, uh, it's sunset, sunset hour. We had to um, come out to a hotel where Mike Hussey was staying to do some work with him, so we're at a much nicer hotel than either of us would be at normally, and we're taking advantage of that to um, sit by the pool in a cabana, we're literally both in deck chairs. Uh, the sun is going down. There are cute little kittens running around the place. A parrot just came and landed on the back of the deck chair. It's like woodland creatures, Disney stuff going on. Uh, it's a different kind of style. Yes, there's kids splashing away in the pool behind us. We're just watching the sunset as we record. It's a lot nicer than... Sometimes we've done this in studios. Sometimes we've done this in living rooms. We've done it in hotel rooms. But We've done it in hotel hallways. We've done it on the roofs of Airbnbs. We've, we've done it in a park. We've done it in a park <laughs> two in the morning. two in the morning after a limited overs We are talking about podcasting, I want to clarify. <laughs> <laughs> but today we, we do it in, a, in, a, in some deck chairs. And I'm not even going to adjust my deck chair. I'm going to lean back for no, the duration of the episode. This is going to be a reclining uh, final word. We, we've got to look back over the series between Australia and Pakistan in the UAE uh, as... As we discussed last week, we're going to get on to all broader matters of Australian cricket um, next episode in, in another week or two when we get around to doing that. But right now it's all about the Emirates, the Test Series uh, that's just gone past Australia losing 1-0, um, getting thoroughly thrashed in the second Test at Abu Dhabi. But we'll get to the Australian side later. I think we need to look at Pakistan first. They're the team who won the series. We've been talking a lot about Australia the last couple of weeks and not so much about the team that played so well to, to get that win. They've just beat Australia. Good effort. I mean, they should have beat Australia. They're yep. expected to. And I, and I and they probably thought, should have won 2-0. But, yeah, um, but, but, but the manner of the second win was so impressive. Yeah, most emphatic, especially after falling the 57 for 5 on the first morning. Um, they didn't have a player make a ton yet. They set Australia 538 to win, which is the incidentally the amount of electoral college votes that there are in the United States presidential election is that mechanism. Right? There is. That's why uh, the 538 uh, website or podcast or various different ways you can access 538 is called that. There, there you go. go. Factoid for you. Little, little I can't believe I didn't think to use that on the commentary <laughs> through the course of the bloody last two days. Um, but no, Pakistan, they could have easily, I felt, in this second test match, struggled to back it up. As is so often the case, if you come very close to winning a test match and fall short, not a long turnaround, they, they might have battled to have uh, fought those internal demons. But by contrast, uh, they, they were so resilient, losing those early wickets on the first morning. They lost four wickets with the score on 57. No sides ever came back to win a test match after losing four wickets on 57 in their first five of a test match. Yep. Uh, and Pakistan can add that to their long list of quirky factoids about uh, their, their nation's history with the game. Yeah, and uh, I think it was a really important series for them in that, you know, Safraz Ahmed has... He hasn't captained a lot of test matches. He captained the Champions Trophy win in, in 2017. So he, he's played a lot more as captain in the limited overs forms. But in test cricket, hasn't had much opportunity. Um, and there was a lot of questioning of him, a lot of doubting of him, especially after some conservative tactics in Dubai meant that Australia... Uh, it was easier for Australia to get away with that draw. So had Pakistan somehow... Had they slipped and stumbled and lost this series, there would have been massive pressure on Safraz on his position as the captain, um, massive pressure on various players in the team. To come back, to lose four for none, Nathan Lyon took four wickets in six balls in on that first morning. Pakistan should have been rumboed for 120, sure. um, and Australia should have romped home to win the Test match. That's what should have happened. And the Australians know that they lost a massive opportunity, but for Pakistan to be in that position and have the resilience. And it all started with Safraz with the bat, because when he came out at five down, he was the one who so briskly turned over the strike, didn't didn't attack as in smashing boundaries, but attacked as in picking runs off every ball, barely faced a dot ball, ones, twos, ones, twos. He, and he was relentless, and his first 70 or so runs came at a runner ball. Fakhar Zaman at the other end on debut, the opener on debut, had the confidence then to go with him, and they put on a, a partnership of 147 and, and built up to a decent total. Yeah, that's right. I think Safraz was more than under the pump. I reckon they would have sacked him. I spoke to a couple of Pakistani journalists about this. Uh, perhaps it was the end of day three, and the, the degree of pressure, the Asia Cup performance, losing to India, it must be remembered, has far broader ramifications than you would think, having lost twice in that tournament to India. 
um, far more than is rational. It's probably like when Australia lose to England, it always um, seems to yep. be the catalyst for a wide-ranging review. Someone, Someone loses sacked. their job, precisely. Yeah. It, it kind of applies the same in, in the rare occasions where Pakistan and, and India get to play each other. So uh, the fact that he was the one that was charged with the responsibility of mounting that rear guard, and like you say, Jeff, it was brisk. His 50 was in 51 balls. He, he maintained that tempo without ever really looking like he was trying to take the Australians on. I think there was two sixes hitting the innings, both by Fakhar, not yep. by... Um, Safraz, so, and he hasn't made 100 for four years. Now, granted, he didn't make 100 here either, but 94 in the first dig, 82 in the second dig to kill off any hope Australia might have had of having a, a realistic yep. shot in the fourth innings. It was the perfect captain's performance. And also, I, I should add that, uh, that he did cop a pretty awful blow to the arm on the first day and then took that wonderful catch down the leg side to remove Usman Khawaja just before stumps. He landed right on the point of the elbow, which had been clobbered by Mitchell Stark at 150 clicks. And, y- you know, y- y- you could understand why he would have been um, apprehensive about wicket-keeping. He didn't keep on the final day after a blow to the head uh, yeah. from Mitchell Stark, but that's another story altogether. He, he was absolutely in the wars um, yeah. throughout that match. But I thought that the dynamism, the way he, you know, particularly he backed away to the offside and cut the ball off his stumps yep. a lot, which is it's high risk um, for, for not huge reward. But what it did was get the Australians frustrated, made them drop the field back, and they really lost the momentum in the second session of day one and, and allowed that partnership to blossom and to put on those runs and getting up to 282 with Pakistan in the first innings yeah they were bowled out late on day one and it was still a massive opportunity for Australia but you still you felt this is a this is a score that could have them in the game and the way they bowled uh, when they came out to, to to rattle Australia for 142 was it 145 uh, 144 I think it was um, yeah. it, it meant that you know that that first inning score was more than enough indeed the first inning score was almost more than Australia's two innings <laughs> combined yeah if you had just said to the Australians at the start of the day, you'll lose the toss, be asked to bowl at Abu Dhabi, where the average first inning score is 403, and you'd knock them over for 282. Um, you know, that, that's obviously uh, something the Australians yep. would have taken. But the manner of the way that Pakistan reached 282 meant that when they walked out to bat, it didn't feel as though they had a good day at the office. It felt like they'd let something slip, and Absolutely. it just changed the, the psychology of that innings. And Even Yassir Shah coming in late, and he whacked yeah, 28 and, right. and, and took some air out of the Australians. Yeah, well, we heard them say at the end of the test match, Justin Langer was mortified that night. He went away on night one. So you still, you stay, you know, day one, honours shared on the basis that Australia were 20 for two at the close, but one of those wickets was the night watchman. Uh, and you'd say honours shared, but Justin Langer, on the other hand, thought they were in real strife because of the, the way they, they let it slip in that middle session and, and ultimately the final session as well, where Safra's batted almost all the way to the death. So it was an odd opening day. It felt like it had so many different... Uh, elements to it. We were trying to recap it at Stumps for our Wisdom coverage and our Wisdom podcast and it took ages because so many things happened. And then coming back on day two, uh, I mean, uh, having batted so well, then it was Mohamed Abbas saying, well, I've got the ball. I bowl at 129 k's an hour, <laughs> but I'm going to absolutely destroy this team. I love how the neon lights have just came on to above us here, Jeff. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's literally <laughs> a big hot pink um, wash <laughs> light has just come on in the cabana canopy above us. It's getting very rosé here. Which proves the sun has formally gone down. Also about the recovery from 57 for 5, it confounds that cliche about Pakistan, doesn't it? That they're brittle and at the first sign of strife they capitulate. Let's use the counterfactual. If Australia were 57 for 5 on the opening morning, what do you think would have happened? In fact, I know what would have happened. Yep. Noting that on the final day at Dubai, Australia very much won that draw. Pakistan lost that draw. Right. And to be in that situation early, it wouldn't. I thought they'd crumble on that basis. So, yeah, it was a, it was a most impressive fight back in... Uh, and put themselves into that wonderful situation and Mohamed Abbas took it from there. Even having fought back to 282, even that shouldn't have been enough. You know, a decent mm. Australian batting performance. And let's touch briefly as well on the surface, which was a terrific Test match wicket. What a great pitch. There was a lot of criticism of that pitch before the Test due to the photos I put up. And it did look like a green top, but we went away and spoke to the curator and spoke to the, the CEO of the Cricket Association at Abu Dhabi. And they explained to you, Jeff, that... It was grass left on there in order to keep the wicket together longer, but it had yep. a broader benefit than just keeping the track together. It was, it was uh, helpful to fast bowlers. They got considerable bounce more than lateral movement, and it didn't ever feel like the spinners were out of the game either. I, I thought it was a wonderful pitch, almost more Brisbane than Abu Dhabi. Yeah, there was there was um, some grip and turn for the spinners, and there was bounce as well, and that, that thick thatch of grass in through the middle of the pitch held it together. Um, and there was that bit of lift and there was that bit of seam movement. It, it was by no means unplayable, but it meant the bowlers were in the match the entire time. And Muhammad Abbas just took 
full advantage of that, plus some tentative and brittle Australian batting. Uh, the way he went through them in the, the first innings, 5 for 33 he took in that first innings. And it was just a matter of uh, landing on a good length and nibbling the ball around a little bit, um, just, just enough to, to beat the edge. He got a couple taken in the slips, and that told you there was some carry in the wicket. Nothing mm. in Dubai carried to the slips, you no, know, aside right. from off the spinners. But no. every edge fell short. We had Aaron Finch wearing a helmet at second slip in Dubai, uh-huh. trying to feel close to the bat. But in, um, in Abu Dhabi, those edges were carrying, and it didn't help that the Australians were going hard at the ball. Yeah, so Mohamed Abbas, we, we touched on this last week on the pod, but I love the fact that there's room for him in Test cricket in 2018. Remember when Darren Lehman was coaching the Australian side when he didn't want anyone in, in the team that didn't bowl legitimately fast 140 or above or 145 or above I think it was and that meant that Peter Siddle didn't play at all until the fifth test match of the Ashes in 2015 in which he dominated he he took 6 for 60 in that test from memory so you know Vernon Philander is number 3 in the rankings right now Jimmy Anderson is number 1 I'm not sure where a bass will jump to after this test but he'll be well inside the top 10 he was 14th before it so he'd have to be well in the top 10 after it yeah exactly man of the series for the third consecutive series I mean it was only one test in Ireland but nonetheless he was man of the match there in England back in May and June and now against the Australians in the UAE. It may very well be that three of the top five bowls in the world, perhaps, are guys who bowl roughly 80 mile an hour in the old money, 130 in kilometres an hour, even less than that when you think about um, Philander. Philander tends to bowl at about 125. I wasn't watching the speed gun that closely with the bass, but usually he was getting clocks no higher than 130. And Jimmy these days is probably a fraction quicker than he was, to be honest, but still, he's not getting batsmen out through pace, he's getting them out through guile. No, well, Philander took, what, six for three on the last day at yeah. Johannesburg? So that was amazing. It really doesn't matter um, what pace you're bowling at, that whole idea that there has to be velocity. It might hold true on Australian pitches with a kookaburra. That might be the, the one thing where the velocity is more important. Maybe, but Chad Sayers, I know Chad Sayers is the forgotten bowler of Australian cricket right now, but he did take, what is it? It's like he's 50 taken, or 60 wickets he's like a hundred odd. Yeah, he's taken 100 odd chill bigots in the last two and a half years uh, for a reason. Yep. So, uh, yeah, I like the change in thinking. It's a little bit like with baseball. You have all sort of different types of pitchers. You have pitchers who go out of their way to um, bowl to pitch as hard as they can and others who have more tricks in their bag. You've got the underhand pitchers you occasionally see in baseball as well. So, yeah, I, I'm glad that that rather dogmatic framework is being unpicked by these medium-fast bowlers. I love the idea that there's room for a medium-fast bowler, and, and, I, and I think that... Abbas, what a story. I mean, he got picked up to play first-class cricket out of his job at the time. It wasn't the other way around, as it often is in the Pakistan first-class system. Uh, He was given a chance a lot later than most people would be, well from the traditional pathway, if you like. Mm -hmm. And here he is at age 28. He's played 10 test matches and taken 59 wickets. Yeah, there's there's this sort of conveyor belt of mature-age Pakistan talent, like Yassir Shah debuted at, what, 27 or 28? Um, Which which Mohamed Abbas has done as well. He's 28 now. Uh, he's taken 59 wickets in 10 test matches. At 15 and a half. 15.64 is you, you, his bowling average, yeah, which is usually the, with the fourth best of all time. Yeah, well, with batsmen, you need to bat 20 times to have an average, Yeah, by most uh, most qualifications. qualifications, would say 20 innings. With bowling, it's a bit different. It's a bit quirky. It's 2,000 deliveries gets you a guarantee. Yep. So despite the fact that he's only in his 10th test match, he well and truly has met that marker. As a, yep. as a lovely little pussycat comes and joins me on my there's, bench here. There's literally a kitten. There's literally a tiny little <laughs> oh, darling. Uh, random Come streak. Who's uh, decided to get involved in the podcast? So we're not making this up. <laughs> all this is true. All of this is actually happening. That's I feel it. very relaxed. The fact that I'm leaning back recording this, my voice may not be projecting properly, but it's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. Yeah, I, I think so as well. But yeah, so Abbas, once he'd routed Australia the first time, there was no way they were, were going to get back into it. It was a matter of what would Pakistan do with the bat? Could Australia bowl them out? The answer was almost, but not quite. They declared nine wickets down. Uh, Babar Azam was probably the big story of the innings, made 99, very nearly made his breakthrough Test 100, and then Mitchell Marsh uh, managed to pin him leg before wicket uh, as he was groping for that 100th run. I was really impressed by the way Mitchell Marsh bowled in the second innings. Limited opportunities, but he bent his back and, and bowled a lot quicker than we've seen from him in the last perhaps 15, 16 months since that shoulder operation yep. after the Bangalore test match. So, yeah, he had a stinker with the bat, and we'll address that in the second segment. But I think he earned that wicket of Barbara's arm. Fantastic delivery coming back off the scene with a with a ball that was pretty old by that stage. So fair play to Mitchell Marsh. Uh, Barbara's arm, 99. There was another 80 in there from Safraz. When yeah, they were eight, running 81, the I think, Safraz. And, and Fakhar Zaman made uh, another half century, so he made 60, 64. 66, and he, and he would have gone on to make 100, I'm certain, if not for that Nathan Lyon call 
caught and bowled, which was ridiculous. Absolutely freakish. It was a self-defence caught and bowled. <laughs> Farquhar Zaman is, is a left-hander who clobbers the ball, and he smashed it back at Nathan Lyon, who took the catch with his face twisted away from the ball and his hands up in front of his face while falling over. Somehow it stuck in his hands. Both times around, they lost Hafiz early, which meant that the responsibility shifted onto the man on debut. I'm just thrilled for him. I, have, I interviewed him oh, three or four months ago, perhaps, when we were in Zimbabwe, and it's a little bit like Aaron Finch, actually. Aaron Finch, all he ever talks about is playing test cricket. Despite the fact that he's a white ball plunderer and arguably the informed player in the world with the white ball at the moment, whenever you talk to Aaron Finch uh, earlier this year, he saw there was an opportunity to get into the test side and he, and he desperately wanted that baggy green and he's done a pretty good job of it so far. The same with Fakir Zaman. You talked to, when I spoke to him, it was all about trying to get his way into this Pakistan test side. Yeah. So I really enjoy the fact that uh, mercurial players, incredible talents who can yep. flog the ball a mile and take down attacks in a heartbeat, yet they still put a real value on playing test cricket and, and that shows when they've been given their opportunity. He put a value on his wicket as well, it's not like he yeah. came out and made his runs at a runner ball, he made him at a strike rate of about 60 I'd say. I think it was 47 uh, in the first innings. And, and he, yeah. we, he was happy to defend uh, for long periods when he needed to and, and, and take up the attack when he wanted to he had two half centuries by the end of the second day so they put up <laughs> they, they, give you, they give us a player at the end of the day to interview it's whoever's done well. I focus him out two days in a row. I was like, we've got to stop meeting like this. And he thought it was quite comical as well that we were having the same chat. We're like, another day, another 50 in Test Match Cricket. Easy peasy. He's the first man to record twin 50s on debut for Pakistan. Granted, uh, that doesn't note the fact that four players have made 150 for Pakistan. Indeed, sure. there's one twin tons. But it's a quirky enough category that I'm happy to go with it. Yeah, dismissed 50s is a particular interest category of interest for to, for, of mine. So. Yeah, you, when Chris Rogers made, what, seven, seven in a row, in a row you, yep. you, wrote, you wrote thousands of words about this alone. I did, and, and nobody noticed it was happening until uh, I, I feel very proud of that one. I picked that one up and then everybody else was going, hang on, this could be a world record. <laughs> People had made uh, strings of 100-plus scores, but no one had been out for a half century seven times in a row. Raul Dravid had six. Right, and he, well, then he ruined it. Remember, because we went to Lords the next week and made 150. Yeah. So he, he ruined it by by finally being able to reach three figures after that run of being consistent but not quite getting there. Although he would have made, he didn't make a 50 in the second innings at Cardiff, so that's so how he broke the streak. Oh there. right, I didn't realise that. It had to be. I thought it was consecutive matches. It was consecutive, consecutive innings, innings, right? Consecutive All innings. More impressive. Yeah, yeah. There was the bit of like cheering him on to reach 50, and then cheering him to get out after he'd reached 50. <laughs> but um, but you know, he he was he was sort of mollified to. The, by the fact that he did have a world record in cricket, in Test cricket, yeah. so of course Farkas Zaman would have much rather make a century, uh, but a couple of fifties for him uh, vitally important. As such, Shafiq made runs as well, four hundred for nine declared, and then they left Australia over two days to bat, and, and Australia was gone through again for one hundred and sixty. Just to put a full stop on the Farkas Zaman discussion, uh, Imam Al Haq will be available for the first Test match against New Zealand. It gives them a, an old-fashioned selection quandary. What do they do with Muhammad Afiz if Imam? is available and you can't drop Fakhar. So it may very well be that Mohamed Hafiz has came back for two test matches, won a series, made 100 and he's out again. That could be the end of his career. Yeah, I mean, it might it might just be this sort of um, hello, goodbye sort of moment. And God, he played so well <laughs> Say on, hello, the first wave, day, on the first day in Dubai. But uh, it, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because... because um, Babar Azam is the future. He's got to stay at six. Asad Shafiq's not going anywhere. Harris Sahail made a hundred in Dubai, so he's not going anywhere. Yeah. Azhar Ali's not going anywhere. So oh, and I'm glad that Azhar Ali made runs in the second dig as well. We neglected to mention that's that. That's true. He's had 60, a terrible 64 he 2018. And we've been huge fans of his on the final word the last couple of years. We saw him make that wonderful hundred in Melbourne over yeah, about the double 17 rain delays. and 205, I think. Yeah, so we, we followed his career pretty closely and... He made twin tons against Australia at Abu Dhabi last time around as well. So yeah, I was thrilled to see him reach 50. I know he didn't go on with it, but it was... He's, uh, he's a real battler. He, he yeah. just um, is, is so happy to put in two days at the crease if he needs to and, and grind his way out. And how did um, he get out as well? I mean, oh, we almost buried the lead here as yeah. a rally dismissal, even though... Um, well, first of all, we'll deal with the response first. I love the fact that he could he put himself up to speak to the media that night yep. after being dismissed in such ridiculous fashion and and he was laughing about it i mean not laughing in a uh, in a not taking it seriously way but able to laugh at himself which is an underrated quality in a sports yes to, to to give you the details he uh Flashed away at oh, it was Siddle he was facing, wasn't it? I think it um, was. Yeah. Thick, outs- oh, Mitch, yeah, yeah, thick outside edge through the gully. Mitchell Marsh dives, gets a hand to it, can't reel in the catch. The ball goes down to third man. It's uh, apparently gone for four. 
Azar Ali punches gloves with uh, such feek in the middle of the pitch. They have a chat. In fact, the ball has stopped about six inches inside the rope. Mitchell Stark realises, pings in the throw. Tim Payne realises, knocks the bails off, and he's run out. And he stood there for about two minutes going, what? hang on, what? Hey, what? And asking the umpire, what's happening? And what, what do you mean I'm out? And, and But he was. He had to go off. But he was such a good sport about it afterwards. Yeah. He, 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 he had a laugh about it and said, well, you know, what can you do? I, I loved his line to us when in the post-match interview. Um, he said, I'm, I'm going to be seeing that come up on the internet a lot. <laughs> yeah, and he also talked about his three young sons are going to be sledging him. So it's kind of the reverse <laughs> Justin Langer who said that he sledges his daughter when they play Uno when he first took over as coach, which was a, a rather amusing way to, to, to conceive of sledging. Just, just another note on the Azarelli dismissal because it did generate, it was the most interesting talking point from the third day when they were running up the scoreboard. He easily could have walked off and been shitty with the Australians. I mean, he wouldn't have had the right to have been, but he could have said, oh, it's unsportsmanlike conduct or it's not the right thing. People have written that. That that piece has been written. Yeah, I saw a a bit of that floating around saying, oh, it would have been good for the image of Australian cricket not to do it. That's that's just... An absolute fallacy. That was a mistake by the batsman, pure and That's right. And then, if you're and a batsman and you make mistakes, you get out. But what I liked about it was, as Ali said that too, he yeah. said it was terrible batting. Um, he said he should have had more awareness and he precisely. didn't watch. So, I mean, and it yeah. did provoke a, a conversation in our commentary box about, um, about running at the non-striker. I'm not going to call it by the, the term that it's used by t- typically because I think it's unfair that Vinu Mankad, who is a phenomenal player, <laughs> continues to be dogged with this tag. But, yeah. uh, but that, you know, about... When is it right to run a player out is a debate in the game. And I think yes. that whenever a batsman's out of his crease and the ball is live, that's the fun. That's the time to yeah. run a batsman out, irrespective right. of whether it's a bowler in his, in his, in his delivery stride or, or, in this case, when the batsman uh, switched off, punched gloves and were having a yak in the middle and, and suffered the consequences. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's, it's up to a batsman to be alert and to know what's going on. And, you know, unless, unless they've been sort of explicitly deceived in some way or, yeah. or, or hampered, you know, knocked over taking the run or something like that. Well, fake like fielding, that. which is now permissible. There's a five-run penalty. That's, yeah, which is bizarre to me. Like, what's but it wasn't. But it wasn't that. Is what I'm trying yeah. to say. It, it was. Yeah. No. No. No worries. There was, there was no in, green there light. Was, there was no deception uh, or, or intrigue. It was just a, a mistake, a clear and simple mistake, and he paid the price for it. But so, as, as we say, they, they all racked up some runs uh, at the top of the order, and then with the wickets, Yasir Shah got into the act later in in the second innings as well. Took three wickets down the bottom. Uh, bold. Had a had a maybe a bit of an indifferent series. wasn't at his best, but still had moments where he came into the game and mm. um, and he was still he's just always exciting to watch. Even if he's not bowling perfectly, he's still giving the ball a rip and um, turning it a long way and and making things exciting. You know, I, I love just having him in the binoculars, um, doing the commentary <laughs> and, and just watching him go through his paces life. Yeah, he's a he's a very watchable cricketer. I love the way that he appeals, even when it's not out. I love that he, he, you know it's very it's a very Pakistani trade, isn't it? Over the years, we've seen their spinners go up for everything and. In a very positive way, I should add. It adds to the theatre of the game, men around the bat. And Yasir Shah certainly lives up to that. He's always creating half opportunities and he thinks he's in the game and he's gesticulating towards his captain and, and all the rest. So, yeah, not a huge series for him. Certainly nothing of the like uh, of what we saw four years ago. But alongside Bilal Asif, who was nowhere near as influential this time around, but he did, did pick up a couple of wickets in a hurry. Well, he took three in the innings. first innings and that was yeah. important there because Abbas had knocked the top off things. But Bilal was the one who came in and got Aaron Finch out, who was well set in That's the first right. innings yeah. and got Tim Payne out. So given Tim Payne had played such a long and, and doughty innings in Dubai, that was a massive blow for Australia that he was gone for it, not many. And Bilal's series looking at uh, looking at the, a man who also was on debut last week in Dubai, age 33, into the side. There's no reason why he couldn't be. I think he's a fantastic bowler, Bill. I love, again, I love watching him bowl due to his wrist position, the way he flings it out. Uh, I think you described him as a, a wrist spinning finger spinner or something yep. to that effect. He's a wrist spinning off breaker. Yeah, and I think that, you know, the more of this variety we can see, the better. Uh, and he complimented Yassi Shah really nicely in both test matches. And Mia Hamza, the, the young left armour with a prodigious first class record 26 fivers in 50 odd games <laughs> more, at first class level. More first class wickets than first class runs. Yeah. 200 and 70-something wickets and fewer runs than that, which you don't see that very about often. A yeah, about half as many runs as that, You don't see that very actually. often in a professional cricketer with a sample size that big. Yeah, and, and he, he was used sparingly, but he played a couple of important roles, a couple of very tight spells that helped create pressure, and, and he bowled one absolute perfect delivery to bowl Sean Marsh in the second innings. Yeah, what a way to claim your first test wicket. I remember when uh, Jamie Over- uh, Craig Overton rather picked up Steve Smith at the day-night day test in Adelaide last year, our our colleague uh, Jonathan Liu from the Independent newspaper wrote something to the effect of "It's like your first, you know, your first kiss is Claudia Schiffer or something like that." <laughs> it, it, it reminded me of that when I saw the ball that got Shaw Marsh out. It was, uh, it was the, uh, it was the the perfect straightening delivery from a left armer over the wicket to a left-handed 
batsman. It didn't swing a ton. It just straightened up the line, clipped the, kissed the top of off stump. That's what dreams are made of. Oh, just, yeah, it, almost, it almost hit the bail rather than the stump. Yeah, it, it was, was just absolutely perfection, that in-swing and, and cut away. So he'll never bowl a better delivery than that. He might bowl, no. he might bowl a few as good, but um, probably not many of those. So as far as, you know, you, you look through, it's basically ticks all down the column for, for the Pakistan side, aside from Wahab Riaz, who bowled poorly in the first test and was left out. Yeah, they all made um, a contribution, didn't they? Even yeah. Hafiz in this test match had a double failure, but last week he made runs. And likewise, it was the case of Azhar Ali made runs in the second dig here. Yeah, you really can go through every player has done something across this series to ensure they won it. So they were the, they were the, the, the right team to have... Uh, lifted the Brido Paints Presents Jubilee trophy. <laughs> Jubilee Insurance Presents Brido Paints Cup. We really, really need to fix that. <laughs> yeah. Final word, listeners, hit us up on uh, on our Twitter accounts, Collins Adam and Jeff Lemon Sport. Who should this trophy be named after the next time that they play for it, which might be quite a while away, actually. I think it's 2022, 23, something like that. Sure. Whatever it is. Surely the front runner is the Lily Meander trophy. The Lily Meander trophy is compelling. I like that. I like it sometimes when they name it after one player. So that is to say, like the Frank Worrell trophy, for instance. I, I I don't mind that. So, what about yes. the Selly Malik Mark War Trophy? Malik, the Selly Malik Tim May Trophy. <laughs> uh, uh, yes, the, 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 there would be other Pakistani players who'd fit the bill. I'm not sure there's tons. As far as Australia's concerned, I mean, Shane Warne had such a fantastic record against Pakistan. Yeah, um, but, he's but he's already, already got the Sri Lankan Warren Trophy. Duran, uh, <laughs> uh, award. So, yeah, maybe we're, we're, we're scratching the surface here. I'm sure someone will come up with something better than what we've had so far. Nonetheless, they, uh, well, the, the one thing we neglected to mention, their biggest ever win over Australia by runs to 373 uh, runs was Pakistan's biggest ever. Surpassing the victory margin the previous time they played Australia in Abu Dhabi four years ago where it was 350 <laughs> odd so uh, an absolute walloping in the second test after uh, that draw in the first but a brilliant performance from Pakistan you're on the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon and after this we're going to talk about Australia oh I'm Adam no I'm not Adam Collins <laughs> <laughs> you're Adam Collins <laughs> This is indeed the final word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins and the final word of this episode brought to you by Wisden Cricket Monthly, greatest cricket magazine in the world. In all of the world, in all of the cosmos, including the two black holes. <laughs> the World T20 is coming up for the women, Jeff. I can't wait to get over there. This is a massive feature edition of the magazine on that. So there's an interview with Danny White on the front. Likewise, Catherine Brunt. Sophie Eccleston, Amy Jones, uh, Sophia Dunkley. So there's, there's, a, there's a, a bit going on there on the front. There's a Mathali Raj interview, which I was meant to do. Sorry, I didn't get around to that, to the guys in the magazine. Joe Harmon has done that. I'm sure it's excellent. Um, there's uh, a history of the England T20 exploits from over the years, which Ralph Nicholson has written. Then we jump into the England. You, you, would, you would have just been dumbstruck, though, if you'd had to speak to Mathali Raj. You're, yeah. you're, you're such a fan, you wouldn't have been able to <laughs> we, say anything. We exchanged some messages last year, and she promptly unfollowed me, because I think she realised that she was uh, that, that it, if we actually were if we had a, a way to communicate with each other all the time I certainly would take her up on that <laughs> um, England are in Sri Lanka at the moment they're drowning in the one day um, in the one day series but by that I mean literally drowning it's rained on every game so far yep. the fourth one day international was weirdly out when you play in monsoon season it rains I know scheduling eh yeah. um, but the test matches are coming up and our friend Jeff Ben Jones our statistician from our coverage from Crickviz who do a fantastic job has pulled together a big deep dive on that mm-hmm. um, Jonathan Liu has had a pop at Australia in his column which he does so well Kumar Sangakara in his Titans of Cricket section which is going really well at the moment uh, has his latest up there too it, it is the best cricket mag in the world for good reason it's, it's one you should subscribe to and Jeff yeah, and th- this th- is what we can this is where we come into the equation how can people subscribe and get a and get a hell of a deal they can go to wisdom.com forward slash final word and there you can get if you get the digital mag if you're around the world not in England and you don't want to get the print copy sent to you you can get 30% off which means uh, it's roughly what a couple of bucks, three bucks an, it's an issue. Three, three Australian dollars or two quid an issue, which is yep. outrageous. This is a, a very high quality uh, piece of kit. You want to have it month to month and it comes straight to your phone or your tablet or whatever it is. It, it automatically downloads. It's it's a piece of cake really. It's actually how I read the magazine these days is through my phone or through my tablet. So I can uh, assure you it's user friendly and yeah, three dollars, It's a, yeah, the, not, not even a cup of coffee a month for access to some of the best writers in the game churning out some of their best work. Jump on there, wisdom.com forward slash final word. It's your way to support uh, independent cricket publishing and also support the Final Word podcast. Now, Adam, we have to talk 
about Australia. We da, need to da, talk da. about we need to talk about Kevin, and by Kevin <laughs> I mean the Australian cricket team. I suppose if you want to take a broader view, uh, it's a mixed result series. You don't want to be too down on it because there was a thrashing in the second test. Because if we're honest, we were expecting a thrashing in both tests, and, and the fact is we did see a performance for the ages in the first test. It, it was. A remarkable thing to be able to escape with that draw in Dubai and, and probably what we saw in the second was what we were expecting to see twice as much of. Yeah, our colleague Dan Breddy wrote a piece for Crick Info last night where he said that everything about this series is, is true. Australia, marvellous recovery at Dubai to be able to save the Test match but equally, four terrible collapses along the way. Great contribution from Aaron Finch to start his career that way. Some promising signs from Travis Head, um, Marnus Labashain taking wickets yet, and also getting a couple of starts. And yet we saw them defeated by the largest margin ever against Pakistan. Like there are, you can't just sort of say it was a complete disaster because it wasn't. Mm. But at the same time, there are some fairly glaring issues that need to be resolved before they take on India in yeah, about six weeks' time. It, it's the nature of the way it ends that, that sets the tone, and yeah. the way it ended was such a disaster with those collapses in in both innings. So you take the long batting performance in Dubai out of the equation. If you look at the other three innings, there were. Uh, Australia lost 30 wickets for 340-odd runs across those other three innings um, from the point of the first wicket going down in each of them. So that's, you know, you're talking 10 runs a wicket, and particularly those middle-order bits. Obviously, a lot of focus on the fact that uh, both of the Marsh brothers had a stinker of a series, both made single figures in most of their innings, made 44 44 runs between them. But as we sort of mentioned last week, there's this thing of being lumped in together, that they're treated as one entity, which really isn't fair on either of them. No, that's right. Sean's a... A complicated case study because he's 35 years of age now, so yep. he's coming towards the back end of his career. But that's that experience is is required in itself. You, you need experienced players with uh, a side with so few test matches in so many players. So how do you square the circle on that when he's not making a run? He's a walking wicket when he's out of form. We've seen that through extended stretches of his career. Yep. We talked about Ben Jones from Crickviz before, but that stat that he pulled out that 44% of his innings, 42% single figures, which is Broadly, du- broadly double what it, what it is for players who've also played in the Australian type. Yep. You know, is Smith Warner. Yeah, um, they're, they're mostly 20 to 25. In the percent. 20s, that's yep. right. So he, when he gets a start, we've always known this for Sean Marsh. He gets a start, he's good to go. You can almost lock him on for a, a decent score and a major contribution. But that's not been the case for a while now since the Ashes series, which feels like a million years ago in terms of what's gone down in Australian yeah. cricket. Oh, God, doesn't it just? See, the, the other side of a, a long walk through the wilderness. Um, yeah. And it doesn't seem like things are through the trees yet. So, But do you play, I mean, the Sean Marsh debate, and we were kind of talking about this on air and maybe off air uh, through the week, it's that if he goes out and finds his touch again for WA, and, mm. you know, he probably will because it's a level down and yep. he has carved up the shield in the last few years when he's played, it does then build a case for him to be picked on that basis that he's in form and he's an experienced player. And, and, yep. and But on the other hand, and you're counter to this Jeff which I can already assume what it'll be which is that while his record at test level at the moment stinks is true as well I don't, I don't know where they're going to land here it's, it's a real toss of the coin for me I think I mean I think what will happen is they will keep playing him because right. Usman Khawaja is not going to be there and yeah, you assume not they're, they're literally, he's, he's literally the only available uh, batsman with decent test experience mm. in, in Australia aside from Mitchell who's, who's played 30 tests Sean's played 34 so that's it as far as, as, far, as far as batsmen who've got any kind of you know test record behind them they're the only ones. And so I think they will be played, even though you could make an argument that experience isn't necessarily the be-all and end-all because it's the inexperienced guys in Dubai who did better than the experienced ones. So so mm. why is experience? I think the issue is that like Sean Marsh could, could be brilliant in the home summer because it's home conditions and he's good at playing fast bowling when he's in form and so maybe he'll make a bunch of runs against India, but then he's equally likely to go to England and make 20 runs in five tests. Yeah. Because it's when, when the slump is on, that's when, it, that's when you get literally nothing. From him, whereas when he's brilliant, you get a lot from him. So that's the gamble, and and I'm not sure if it's a, a gamble worth taking. Well, they've already ended his career once. It's well, easy to forget that. Well, no, they really did end his career last year after yeah. the Border Gavaskar Trophy series, which they played. He played all four Test matches, and he played a, a vital role to save the match at Ranchi. Yep. Perhaps his perhaps his best Test innings, I'd say. You could be, or maybe Adelaide this year could surpass it. But that was yeah. a phenomenal innings against Jadeja and Ashwin out of the rough. It was, they, and, they, and they, then around that there were five single figure scores. Oh, no, no, so, no, so I'm, it was, I'm just observing it was that classic high low thing. Sure, though, no, no, you know. putting it to one side. I'm just yeah. observing that. They, no, it's they, not a criticism. His contract was his contract was taken away from him a month later. It, it's just fascinating that there is that division, yeah. and, and that was, and so that's probably why the contract was taken away. Sure. and he didn't go to Bangladesh, and there no. was it seemed to be a, they'd a, moved on. Yeah, right? they were yeah. saying this is it, but um, but now it's not it. And there is every chance he'll go to the Ashes because there's every chance he'll play and make runs in the home summer. So, 
but it's, so it's a matter of whether that's a, a blessing or a curse, I suppose. It's the opposite of why he was criticised earlier in his career. So when he was taken to South Africa in 2014, the observation from most, you and I included, was that, hang on, where's his body of work at first class level, which demands a recall? There wasn't mm. one. At the time, he was picked ahead of Philip Hughes, and that looked to be a, a decision that didn't seem to marry up with the numbers. These days, it's, it's the opposite. It's that we know he can and does dominate first class cricket. He has for... Uh, probably the last four years, his record's sensational. So, <laughs> you know, these days it's more about, geez, can you just, stop? it's like, there's not, a, there's not a justifiable reason for him not to be picked. It's just no. when he does get picked, it's so, it's such a the, uh, feast or famine situation. Yeah, the, the, the risk profile is so high, I yeah. suppose. It's a, it's a high stakes game. If it comes off, great, but, uh, but you know that you're not going with a bankable option. Mitchell Marsh was made vice captain for this series. Yep. Uh, he was elected by his peers. He was really proud of that. Spoke to him a couple of days ago uh, about this, and he was just chuffed that his colleagues and his teammates saw fit to make him the vice captain. And he's such a likable man, full stop. Like, there's almost not, uh, it's impossible to not like Mitchell Marsh once you spend any meaningful time with him because he's a really nice human being. Yeah. Uh, and he's trying his hardest to do everything he can to succeed at this level. And we thought he'd broken through during the Ashes summer, and he probably had. But this is a, a bit of a setback. What's happened in the last since Durban? Really, it's a fairly it's a major setback, and he'll come to the Australian summer under as much scrutiny as he had when he came home from India a year and a half ago. I think both of them have been done a disservice in terms of having succeeded at down the order five and six respectively in the Ashes, and then pushed up the order in this series. I don't think that helped them in in terms of instability. I'd want to see Mitch Marsh still in the team because I think he showed enough last summer to show that he, he's a batsman who has a lot of improvement ahead. Yeah, of him. but but at six, but he right? needs to be. Yeah, that, that's right. He looks like the sort of guy who is purpose-built to take an attack down when the side's four for 200 or four for 250. He's the guy that can easily turn that into, a into you know, uh, you, you can pile on 100 runs against the old ball and then uh, take you into the, the second day in a commanding position. I'm not sure whether he's necessarily the bloke you win at four for 40, but that's something that he can, over time, uh, piece together. We saw in the tour game better for 290 balls or something like that. So he has the long innings in him. Indeed, his first major contribution for Australia A was when he made a double ton over about seven hours as well. So he yep. can go long and he can bat deep, and he did against England at the Wacker too. He batted for an entire day there or near enough an entire day. I feel as though when he goes home, it's going to be that unfortunate sort of almost meme about the Marsh Brothers. It's yep. the it's oh the Marsh Brothers they get picked all the time rah rah so yep. on and so forth and that they probably won't be he'll, he'll be wearing some of the um, by association guilt for his brother having had a poor series and yeah, having played exactly badly that. in South Africa as well and, and perhaps being a less defensible pick. There's a lot more going for the Mitchell Marsh pick. That's right. Um, Aaron Finch made four starts. Gave away four starts. That's been quite a consistent thing in his first-class career as well. He's said so himself. He's got a record where he hasn't necessarily made big scores in red ball cricket, even though he's, he's got overall a good record because he's made a decent number of runs. That's a little concern for me. I think maybe where there's been a lot of focus on the good news side of, oh, great, look, Aaron Finch has made starts. But he had opportunities to have much more of an influence on... Um, two different test matches and didn't really do so. And you're right in saying that he acknowledges it's a a problem in his game. He's talked himself about how his tons column is nowhere near as populated as it should be for a man that's made as many first-class runs as he has over an 11-year stretch in the Victorian side and in various other um, teams in England. But uh, the positive, I'd say, is that we talk about the debutants um, and most people would reflexively say, oh, Travis Head and Marnus Labuschagne. They probably wouldn't even say Aaron Finch. It doesn't... He doesn't feel like he's just walked into the test team. He feels as though uh, he's been there for a while and those broader leadership qualities that we spoke about last week about Aaron uh, shone through. I feel as though he was someone they could get up and talk to the media. Little things like that off the field that do play a role in the way the team's perceived and and keeping them on the right track. So I'm certain that he'll get an opportunity in Australia. He's deserved it. And two weeks ago, you might have thought, well, he'll be a stopgap. He'll play in this series, and Matthew Renshaw will take his spot for Brisbane. But now with the Usman Khawaja injury, and even if Usman Khawaja is fit for the first Test match, I think there's they'll find a way to include both Finch and Renshaw. Indeed, they might very well open together with Usman Khawaja batting at three. That would probably be the right balance for mine. Travis Head played well in the second innings in Dubai. Played pretty well for a bit in the second innings at Abu Dhabi played as well. Played really well until he got out. That yeah. second innings, uh, remember, he came in not long before the close of play on day three. Difficult time to walk out to the middle. Didn't um, send a night watchman in, which I liked. Yeah, and I think, I mean, this is, you know, it, you, sometimes it's the case that you can make 
30 odd or 40 odd and, and just you know it'd be an innings of no real substance but and, and this was when the order was shuffled we should mention because Kawaja wasn't batting yes, so Sean right. Marsh had opened he was out um, quickly and, and early and so Travis Head came in at three and he was faultless until he got out which was the, the most next, disappointing the next part morning, like yeah. an hour in yeah. that's right he, he was he was a victim of Muhammad Abbas in that wonderful spell of his but the first victim of uh, yeah Abbas took four in, in three overs on that um, that final morning I just thought that the way he was striking the ball Justin Langer talked about his cut shot how much he enjoyed watching Head go all the way over to the offside and cut down hard on the ball I noticed that on the call as well that he seemed to be ready to go on and, and play that sort of role play that sort of innings rather which you remember as your first test ton so very disappointing that he did get out when he did but uh, yeah positives there green shoots plenty to work with Manus Labuschagne, seven wickets at 22, probably his um, more <laughs> useful contribution than with the bat. Uh, a couple Two of starts, starts, yeah. 25 and 43 in Abu Dhabi. Got run out in that unbelievably dozy fashion in the first innings where he just didn't ground his bat at the non-strikers end when the ball was just defended back down the pitch and he literally watched it roll onto his stumps yeah. with his bat in the air. That's, that's one that I think he'll have bad dreams about for years. And then it provided that little bit of resistance in the second innings, but it was always going to be futile, um, made 43 and then top-edged a pull shot. I wonder where he's going to fit because I yeah. really like him as the second spin option in Australia. I really like the idea of him being utilised as... Uh, the sec- because he'll get so much bounce on Australian surfaces. That's his main comparative advantage as a leggy. He gets heaps of topspin, overspin, uh, and seems to cause problems for batsmen that way. And it's clear that he's a, at short leg. We neglected to mention his unbelievable catch, uh, reflex catch, to remove Muhammad Afiz on the opening morning uh, to get Mitchell Stark in the book. So, um, But we mentioned before that Mitchell Marsh should bat six. Does Labuschagne bat number five in this test side? That's mm. hard to see. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, can he fit in anywhere else? I'm not quite sure. It's going to take a while to find out where his spot in the Australian side is, but I, I'm fairly confident they'll find one for him for the first test in Adelaide purely because can you drop a bloke that has given you something in both test matches? Would that be fair? Would that be the right message back to Shield cricketers if he did get dropped here? I, I'm not necessarily I, sure that I think, it would. I'm not sure I agree. I think it all rides on the Shield. I think if he makes runs in the Shield, he'll force them to retain him. Right, but I think he fair. could very easily be squeezed out. Um, and that that's going to be affected by the Sean Marsh thing as well. If Basically, they can't drop Labuschagne if they retain Sean Marsh because you, you can't you know, back a guy who's, who's done poorly when someone else has done comparatively much better that's true. And, and squeeze that player out. But then it comes down to what happens in other cricket between now and then. If, if Sean Marsh makes no runs in the one-dayers or, or the Shield, then, of course, he won't be picked. But if, if Labuschagne doesn't make decent runs in that time, he probably won't be either. There's got to be half a chance that Labuschagne is picked for the one-dayers as well because he was initially taken to India on the A Tour as a 50-over player. Yeah, he wasn't even on the first-class no, league. No, he was retained after some good performances for Australia A with the white ball. So, and also, and, was was it a Renshaw injury? Was that partly yes, why he was drafted right. in? Yes, Renshaw uh, yeah. had a... Hammy or Hamstring, a calf, yeah. I think it was Hammy, yeah, that's right, over there, which precluded him from playing mm. the first couple of white ball games. But um, just on this, the amount of cricket that will be played between now and then, massive tick that there's five shield rounds before the first test. I love that. I think yep. that's fantastic, and, and that's exactly how it should be. In fact, Jeff and I, uh, you and I, Jeff, we've argued for this um, a lot about their playing um, more cricket before the first test. This time around, though, where it's going to be a bit of a problem is that players that we will need to see play shield cricket are going to be playing in the one-day international. Sean Marsh is one of those, yep. uh, and Glenn Maxwell is another. It could be said that Glenn Maxwell lucked in, in a way, by not playing in this series because Australia got rolled um, so convincingly their middle order didn't perform, and if he had a fallen into that category of players that um, couldn't fight back against the, the tidal wave of Muhammad Abbas, then he would have been out of contention for the first test in Australia. But mm. the problem he's got is that the T20 games he's playing here in the UAE next week have met that he's missed Victoria's first shield round, yep. uh, and he'll miss next, the next shield round as well while he's over here on the way home. And then the next three games, well, at least two of them, will clash with Australia's one-day internationals against South Africa to start yeah. the summer. So it might be in his best interest to be left out of the one-day team and get to play some shield rounds and force them to... to well, maybe him. he'll ask for that. I mean, he, he won't, of course, because it's crazy. Because you want to play for Australia. Play for Australia. We, yep. we had a chat to Mike Hussey about this yesterday and he made the same point. Like, You, you don't want to be in a situation where you're asking not to play um, for Australia in any format. It's no, a, it's you'll, a, you'll take any cap you can get anywhere, anytime. For good reason. But what happens if uh, Glenn, Glenn Maxwell, who um, needs to according to Justin Langer and the selection panel, make more first-class tons and more tons full well, stop. Well, needs, needs to make more hundreds, but he's going to be batting five, five, or or six. five or six in yeah. a, a one-day and, 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 what, and what if, and I think this is actually a more likely scenario, Maxwell's in the squad and not even playing in the one days. So mm-hmm. There's a fairly strong chance they'll leave him out of the team itself. And then what? He's riding the pine, much yep. as he was against New Zealand two years ago in the
in that home series, at home one day series, where he couldn't play for Victoria, couldn't make a case, and Nick Maddinson leapfrogged him and got ahead into the test side. So yeah. I'm sure that'll be a sensitivity for Maxwell, but equally for Marsh and maybe even Labuschagne, where they'd be far better suited and far better placed in the Sheffield Shield for those couple of weeks. But I fear for all of them, they might not get much of that experience at all. Australia's bowling in uh, this Pakistan series. Mitchell Stark uh, crocked by the end of it, struggled physically throughout. John Holland struggled to be up to the standard. Peter Siddle battled away as he does. Um, disciplined but wasn't hugely effective, didn't get great rewards. And Nathan Lyon basically had to do half of the work, a huge amount of the lifting, bowled more balls than any Australian's ever bowled in a two-test series. Mm. Um, and you could tell that there was just too much being asked of him by the end. Yeah, he took eight wickets in the second test match. And I'm glad he cashed in with a couple of late ones uh, in the Pakistan second dig because uh, he certainly earned it. He bowled so well. Both innings, the way that he was able to land the ball, give it plenty of flight, take advantage of the conditions. We talked about the grass on the pitch. and meant the line on that opening morning when he took four wickets for nothing. It was more Australian style. We, we, we talk about line bowling ugly in the subcontinent, Jeff, but these were overspinning deliveries, catching the shoulder of the bat or going through and hitting the top of the stumps. They weren't um, sliding through and hitting the batsman low on the pad with balls that intentionally weren't spinning. So he deserved to clean up uh, at the end there. And statistically, it means that he moved past Brett Lee and Mitchell Johnson, only three men sit ahead of Nathan Lyon on the all-time wicket-taker list for Australia. Lily, McGrath and Warren. So there's every chance he'll at least rise, rise to third before his career is done. Dennis well, Lilly's 355, Lily. So not far away. That one's pretty much in the bag. You'd think so. What, and what a great story that is. And the fact that he's only 30... There, there is a possibility that Nathan Lyon's still on the team sheet in five years' time, then who knows? It's just such a, you know, we go on about it quite a lot when we talk about Lyon, but it's a wonderful story, and he's such a different cricketer to, to the man who played uh, a different kind of role, but quite a nervous character around the place until a couple of years ago. Never quite sure of his place uh, in the longer term thinking of selectors. Routinely was on the chopping block. He was only saved due to injury in the summer of 16-17. It's not even two years ago. And here he is with 318 test wickets to his name. How good's that? Speaking of chopping blocks, John Holland has probably played his last test match. I feel for him. It's a very tough gig to try to come in as a second spinner and be up to the standard immediately. But Australia won't tour Asia for a couple more years. It'll be 2020 by the time they're touring Asia again. They've got two. Time, te- well, they actually do get two tests in Bangladesh in 18 months' time. So there is right. one. I reckon there's one more small window for John Holland. But in 18 months' time. But I don't think he'll be picked in 18 months' time. You look at you know Lloyd Pope making a, a splash coming into the Sheffield Shield. Yep. You look at Mitchell Sh- uh, Swepson going around. Uh, I think they'll go with a leg spinner next time they tour the subcontinent or they'll go with Ashton Agar. I was going to say, Agar's been on so many of these tours as the spare bowler and he did play in Bangladesh and bowl quite nicely last year as well and then Steve O'Keefe is still in the mix as well. There's a compelling case that his work over a really long period of time, including last year when he had his opportunities, albeit um, opportunities that were interrupted by injury at one stage of the year, but you'd, you'd think that uh, Steve O'Keefe isn't completely out of contention there either. It is a terribly hard role being yep. the Australian second spinner when you get you're only dusted out. Yeah, you, you, right. get, you get two gigs, and then yeah. and then it's like if you don't impress in totally foreign conditions against good players or spin, sorry, you're off. See you later. Yeah, so take a Steve O'Keefe character. He took twelve for seventy in Pune last year, and then he didn't go to Bangladesh on the next tour. Now there were other circumstances involved in yep. that, and, and that's that's fine. But it, it doesn't take much to be. Uh, out of the out of contention, and John Holland himself, the previous tour that he went on as the second spinner was Sri Lanka in 2016. He played two tests there, and he was overtaken by O'Keefe the next time around. That's what makes me think that next time they tour, I'm sure there'll be you know there'll be other spinners who will have come from somewhere to to probably take that spot. So even though he's taken massive bags on Australia A tours and um, and and done such good work in first class cricket over a long period of time, it just feels like his opportunity's gone. Another man who may have played his last test, and this is I can't believe I'm saying this, and I don't believe it, and I don't want to believe it but it's plausible that Peter Siddle has as well because in Australia they're going to play the three big quicks for good yep. reason they are tried true t- tested but, but, but all the Adam, there's no way Mitchell Stark gets through six test matches back to back it's not going to happen his, his recent history he cannot get through a series well, without injury well well okay you, you can say that but he did get through eight on the trot uh last summer so he played five in Australia then three in South no, Africa before he, he broke down Boxing Day. You're right, in, he did. Sorry, no, you're right, you are. Sorry, he, you, 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 he, did, he did miss the Melbourne he missed, test. He missed the fourth yeah. test, and he was still crocked for the fifth test. He came back and played in Sydney, but wasn't fully fit. No, no, right, you are. Sorry, that's my bad. Yep. Yeah, so Mitchell Stark has... Uh, yeah, so maybe there's a chance there that he won't get through. But, but like, the point I'm really making, though, isn't about fitness. I'm just saying that at the start of the summer in Adelaide, yep. it'll be Stark... 
Hazelwood at the start, sure. But there, I think there will be opportunities through the summer where other other fast bowlers will have to come in. There'll have to be a supporting. But he's Siddle number four, though. I, the point I'm to get to my actual point yes. is Siddle going to be considered number four in home conditions? I doubt it. I see that Nathan Coulson Isle is playing in the T20 series this week. That's very encouraging. A man of significant ability. Um, will he get an opportunity to, to debut? He was in the squad quite a lot last year. Yep. I mean, that's just one example of, of bowlers who are around. Jason Berendorf will be playing in the second half of this year. It's another man who's been backed in by selectors before. Mm-hmm. So, Siddle uh, might be in a situation where he's relying on uh, the side going to England next year, him being over there with his Essex deal and then taking them, 100 wickets taking for Essex squilling wickets for Essex yep. and then going well hang on he's a much better option in, in seeming conditions but but I, I'm kind of like what if they don't I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. thinking what if they go what if they dance with the one that brung them uh, in the home summer against India and they and Siddles left that in the cold as he was uh, a couple of years ago against England in 2015 yeah it's probably not how it should happen I think if you if you go to England with your you know your all pace attack with your sort of Stark Cummins Coulton Isle kind of everybody at 145 banging the ball down mm. it, English batsmen love that. The ball coming on straight and not seeming fast. You, know, you, you look at the way that Andrew Strauss and Alistair Cook in, in seasons past tailed up Mitchell Johnson and that kind of thing. Lovely, bowl fast, absolutely, please. It, it just helps us slash it away behind point for four. So I do have hopes that they will come to their senses that in those conditions you need someone who can use the seam of the ball effectively. And Chad Sayers is the other one that's, that should be in that conversation. But I yep. wonder whether, because Chad Sayers hit the radar sometimes at 120 or so kilometres an hour in that Johannesburg test, yep. whether they'll say, well, sorry, mate, you're just too slow. Becoming full circle, that should be. Mohamed Abbas should have uh, absolutely thrown that conversation out the window. I mean, I hope so. I mean, it should, I... but it doesn't mean that the right decision will be made. That's right. And, and they'll look at the age of Siddle as well, probably as well, and see that he's at the back half of his career in saying that James Anderson is 36 and never bowled better so look there's lots to consider but I really truly hope that that's not the case we have said before that Siddle might have played his last test and probably three separate occasions he's got back into the side after that was the case so fingers crossed we do see him again but I I am mindful that you know it it could be closer to the end than we think for him a lot of unanswered questions ahead of the Australian summer. That's probably a good place to leave it here from Abu Dhabi, from the beautiful pool deck of Yas Island. <laughs> thanks to everybody who's been involved uh, as a listener or a contributor to our wisdom.com radio commentary of the series over the last couple of weeks. It's been a hell of a lot of fun bringing those two tests to everybody. Yeah, it was, Jeff. Uh- a remarkable thing to be able to do. It's been so well received by listeners and and people who love the game, who love radio commentary, who feel it's essential and think there's something magical about it. Uh, And we're proud of what we did, fundamentally. We're proud of the products we put together every day. We worked our asses off, and I leave this country tonight knowing that we did a good thing, and hopefully we get the chance to do it again sometime. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, Jeff Lemon Sport, Collins Adam. We will be podcasting over the course of the summer. The final word will be coming. So if you want to uh, get in touch and let us know what we should be talking about or give us any feedback on what's going on, do so. And of course, don't forget, subscribe to Wisdom Cricket Monthly. If yeah. you can do it, if you've give got it the go. means to do it. Throw I'm not 15 saying bucks at it if, yeah. you, if you have them. Yeah, if you've got the money at your disposal and you enjoy good cricket writing, I, I tell you now, Jeff, as freelancers, we rely on magazines such as Wisdom Cricket Monthly to be profitable and to be excellent and to be the, the best in the business and, and that only happens if people get behind the product and buy it. Journalism doesn't happen for free. Good writing doesn't happen for free either. So get on board. Wisdom.com forward slash final word. That's, that's the magic button to press and once you're there, 15 bucks for six months. Can't ask for anything more than that. There will be more final word episodes through what will be a very busy season leading into bloody hell into a World Cup and an Ashes next year. So we've got about nine months of podcasting <laughs> back to back. Look out for us next time. This has been The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. I ain't protected by the right ain't fenced in my future questions my current senses. That'll be the same we've been doing for centuries. Sorry if I ran out to empty both this so you know what I meant here. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories that